0: Father, my prayer this morning is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word, and a word for our hearts. Amen. Amen. So, I married Vicki, and Vicki gets to do exciting things with me. She gets to go to the opera and the orchestra, and sometimes she gets to see her husband perform. Nice, soft, red velvet cushioned seats, air conditioned when it's hot, heat when it's warm. I think that's a pretty good deal. You know what I get to do now that I'm married to Vicky? Climb mountains. <laughs> we have climbed two in Maine. We climbed one in South Carolina. And there's one, I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a little book you can buy and it tells you all the hikes and trails at the state or national park you're going to. And Vicki very nicely said to me, I know you don't like this. Oh, I found one that's easy. Said it right in the book. She showed it to me, <laughs> easy easy if you are a mountain goat (laughs) and we're climbing and over and climbing and over and the people are coming back and they're going this ain't easy and I'm like I agree we got up there I was drenched with sweat so that was the first hike Mm. the next one says and I can live with this it says it was difficult but short Mm. well that's a description of Vicky's husband so I'm in. Well, here's what it was, and you can check with Vicki. I am not lying. It was vertical, and there were benches every about 10 yards. And you would get up and you'd, oh, 10 yards, and you'd sit down and you, huh, huh, huh. And then we would all get up, and we would all go up another 10 yards to the next bench. Now, at the top, it got a little flat, and there was an observation on the tower on the top of the mountain. And we climbed that. It was a beautiful view. Okay, I say, I love Vicky. Then we went to Maine. And we climbed one called the Beehive. Now Vicki and her her young family members went up the front, and there's iron rungs in the in the rock, and you gotta and we went, again, the book said easy (laughs) Easier (laughs) and it said some scrabbling. (laughs) That's what I'd like to know. So we're going up the trail, and it's rocky, and up and down, and up and down. And then we come to this wall of boulders. Oh, and it's about 30 feet up. And you have to climb up the wall of boulders to get to the next part of the trail. I'm like, what idiot did this? Yeah, so Vicky can't see this, but now her short, fat husband with knee replacements looks like a baby giraffe climbing up this mountain. So when we get to... This Bible story where it says Jesus, Peter, James, and John went to climb a high mountain. I have some experience in this area. (laughs) We also did another one that I have to say was not too bad called the bubble. We went up the north bubble. And the views there were glorious. But if you have heard the stories of me and mountains, like I point out, there's no air conditioning There's no soft red velvet chairs. There's no beautiful music playing. All you can hear is a short, fat tenor saying under his breath, opera singers should not have to climb mountains. (laughs) It's hard. It's exhausting. It's humbling. It's seemingly endless. And then you get to the top. Now, what did this mean? There's three parts of the sermon. The first part is what did this mean for the disciples? Remember, the disciples were good Jewish boys. They grew up reading the Old Testament. They went to study it with their local rabbi. And they knew that if you wanted to meet God, you had to go to a hilltop. Moses is tending sheep. Up on a hill he sees a burning bush. Up the hill he goes, God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. He comes back down. The people of Israel cross the Red Sea. They go to a large mountain called Sinai. God says, come up the mountain. After six days, a cloud comes over the mountain and there's lightning and flashing and the people are afraid. They said, don't talk to us, God. Just talk to Moses. And Moses would go up the mountain to talk to God and then bring down God's word. The Ten Commandments. At the end of his life, Moses, it says in the the scriptures, he knew that it was his time to die and God took him to Mount Nebo. And he looked over Mount Nebo, just like we did on the bubble when we were in Maine, and he could see all of the land in front of him. And God said, this is the promised land. You can see it, but you can't go in. So Moses knew that God was on the top of the mountain. And the boys, the Jewish boys, Peter, James, and John, knew that that's where you found God. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. Where? on the top of Mount Carmel, another mountain. And he went up and you remember the story that they, they put up the sacrifice and then they cover it with water upon water and jars and jars and jars. And fire came down from heaven and God demonstrated his power and glory. Elijah knew that you met God on a mountaintop. So the king and the queen don't like the fact that Elijah has killed all the prophets. And he runs away and he's praying to God. He says, I'm all alone. Nobody's as faithful as I am. And then God says, well, here's an earthquake. And God wasn't in the earthquake. And there was a great fire, and God wasn't in the fire. And there's a great, mighty rushing wind, and God wasn't in the rushing wind. And on the top of the mountain in the cave, you remember, Elijah heard a still, small voice. Elijah knew that you go to the top of a mountain to meet God. Jesus took his disciples who knew this. It was ingrained in their being that something special was going to be happening because they were climbing the mountain. And when you climbed a mountain, you were intentionally going to meet God. God built his city, Jerusalem, and his temple on a mountain. When you're going through the Psalms and you get back to the 120s, You'll see a little mark. It's called the Song of Ascents. 121, I lift up my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? They would meet at the bottom and they would sing these songs as they climbed ascending to Jerusalem. These men knew that you climbed a mountain, a hilltop, to meet God. And while they met God there, they met the two other people that knew about mountains. So, Peter is a little overwhelmed and we're not gonna pick on Peter. I've heard sermons that picked on Peter. Peter says, let's build three houses and we can live here and everybody can come up and see Moses and Elijah and Jesus the way they ought to be, transfigured. Now we talked about this Thursday night. Do you know how Pittman got to be a town? It was a camp meeting. The, the, the preachers used to put a big tent in Pittman when it wasn't a town. And the people would come and put their tents around in the late 1800s. And the preachers would come and they would preach the word of God and lives would be changed. And they said, this is holy ground. Let's build something here. And they, they would build a church and houses around it. Pittman was a, a camp meeting. A place where people went to the metaphorical hilltop to meet God. Malaga, camp Malaga, this Methodist Summer Youth Assembly down in Malaga was a camp meeting. South Seaville was a camp meeting. DeLanco was a camp meeting. We would find these places just like Peter said, and let's build a house here because we know God is here. Well, we know that God is everywhere. And sometimes you have to leave the mountain. So you have to climb the mountain. I'm sorry, you do. And uh, I have a feeling that when we go to Alaska this summer, there'll probably be at least one event where I have to climb something I don't want to. (laughs) I will climb it for three reasons. One is Vicky. I love Vicky. Vicky (laughs) wants to climb the mountain. I got to go. Number two is I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want Vicky to get up there and take all these wonderful pictures and maybe a couple selfies. Over this miraculous view that I chickened out and didn't go to see, And the third one is, I want to see it for myself. So the disciples teach us three lessons. This is the first part. It's under the category of hilltops. You have to go. Jesus says, come with me. You have to go. It's not very theological. It's not... Very eloquent, but that's rule number one, is what Jesus calls, you have to go. God says in this story that you have to listen. Just being present when the word of God is being taught is not enough. It needs to go in your ears, and it needs to get embedded into your head and your heart. You have to listen. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased... Listen to him. Jesus wasn't just a good storyteller. He wasn't just a magician that did magic tricks and healed people and made tuna fish sandwiches. He was the son of God. And God says, listen to him. And then the third thing is, you have to leave the mountain. You have to go down. You can't stay. I sometimes feel sorry for the folks who live at the camp meetings, because they never get to challenge their faith out here in the real world. They live in a protective bubble, a Christian force field around their little town. And yes, they get to celebrate and worship, but they never experience the challenge and the victory of living out in the world with us. So the second H in my sermon, the second point is Hallmark Movies. So the first one was Hilltops. Second one is Hallmark Movies. What has 15 actors, four settings, two writers, and one plot? 632 Hallmark movies. Now, Vicki and I enjoy a good Hallmark movie. I get mad at the Christmas ones because they never mention Jesus, and you've heard me say that before. But they're all cute little love stories, and nobody says bad words, and you never see naked bottoms, and I'm I'm a happy man. They fall in love, and usually there's one kiss at the very end of the movie. And I tease Vicky, and I say, you know what? All you need for a Hallmark movie to be successful is one of three things. A hidden talent, you secretly know how to bake the world's best cupcakes, a cute pet or a cute kid. And you can really do a Hallmark movie if you combine them. You've got a hidden talent and a cute pet. You're, you're golden or you know how to write a book or run a bookstore. So here's what happens. Hallmark movies are two hours long. Right about an hour and 10 or an hour and 15 minutes, you hit that moment where everything is perfect. The hidden talent has been discovered. You fall in love with the cute kid or the pet. There's uh, sparks flying, everybody is smiling. <gasps> oh, they found their moment and it's that pinnacle. It's the top, it's, it's the moment that we all want to see. And yet, if you watch enough Hallmark movies, you know that in the next 15 to 20 minutes, it is all going to come crashing down. That pinnacle moment, all the tumblers click. You know that something bad is coming. And I want you to know that that's probably the truest thing about Hallmark movies. When you get those moments where everything fits perfectly together, You need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, something bad is coming. I'm not being negative. That's life. Everybody gets flat tires. Everybody gets a cavity in their tooth. Everybody gets an upset stomach or the flu or something. And let's be honest, it never happens at a convenient time. Don't you wish kids got ear infections at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? My kids never got ear infections at 1 in the afternoon, it was always 2 o'clock in the middle of the night, and the kid wakes up screaming, holding their ear, and you got to go to the ER for amoxicillin. When you reach that spot, you need to know that something's going to happen. Now, in a Hallmark movie, it's usually somebody hears only half of the conversation, and they walk away in a huff. Or they find out that there was an initial subterfuge. Well, you go in and you be nice to this person just so we can get the deal. And while they're being nice to the person, they fall in love. And at the end, they have to say, well, at first it was a mistake, but now I really love you. Or they uh, have a perfect job offer out of town. Their dream job comes up, but they're going to have to leave this place, this mountaintop, this hilltop to go and resolve it. And those things happen to us. And I hate to tell you this, but this is the moment in scriptures when it happens to Jesus. Because it says in the other gospels that this is the moment that he turned his head towards Jerusalem. And he began to teach his disciples that he would die and be raised again. This is the moment where Jesus got to the very top, the pinnacle, and said, Here we are, God said, this is it. This is what it looks like when you're transfigured. Now go down to the mountain and do what I ask you to do. Sacrifice yourself for all of humanity. So the hilltop meant something to the disciples. The transfiguration, the Hallmark movie moment, meant something to Jesus. But what does it mean for us? Well, there's three things I want to leave you with Jesus on the mountaintop. The first one is, If you never climb the mountain, if you never take the risk, then you're still stuck at that first-line faith that Craig Rochelle talks about. You are only a Christian as much as it benefits you. If you never climb the mountain, then you're giving what I call lip service instead of life service. You can come to church and wave your hands and praise God all you want, but if it doesn't follow you out the door, it really doesn't mean anything. Or, this is the moment where your faith takes that first step and the rubber meets the road. I want to save that story. So what does this mean for us? This means, and this is the last part, hope for tomorrow. So we have three H's. Hilltops, Hallmark movies, and hope for tomorrow. I have some scripture I want to read for you. We shall all be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are not the only people that are gone in the dark at the end of time. We shall all be changed. And those rickety knees that I complain about, climbing mountains with Vicki, and the fact that I can't lift things up because of the accident and my shoulders were rebuilt, or my heart that's given me grief that I have to go for the cath for, all of that will be gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall all be changed. Try this one. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Also from Corinthians 5, 17. I get to be changed. I get to be a new creation. And we'll do the obvious one. John 3, 17. You must be born again. There's a recreation here. There's a a resuming of the relationship that Adam and Eve left back in the garden. There's a healing. There's a holiness that comes from this. Think about this. Moses was a murderer. Elijah was faithless. He was crying on the top of the mountain. Why am I doing this, God? I have no more faith. That's why he sent the earthquake and the fire. All of us. Who sin are going to be transformed. Why? Because Jesus left that mountain and set his heart on his, on Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean for us? This means that we need to intentionally enter into this transformation. I want you to think about this. <laughs> Vicki and I, and I'm sorry to say her name so much in this sermon. But I want to point out I have not said anything embarrassing. Just we spend a lot of time together. I look forward to Thursday mornings when we don't have school or a snow day or in the summer. Vicky and I have this odd thing we do on Thursday mornings. We look forward to the makeovers on NBC. They pull two people out of the crowd first thing in the morning. And people actually go there with big signs like... Pick me, pick me, it's my 70th birthday or my mom needs a makeover. They go with this intention, they pull them out and for the next several hours they cut their hair, they find them different clothes, they do their makeup and I don't know exactly how they do it but the person doesn't get to see the transformation take place. And then they bring them out and their family has blindfolds and they go to the family, have a look. And there's always tears because the shock is so dramatic. And then they say to the person, would you like to see yourself? And I'm waiting for the day that the person says, no, I'm good. But it never (laughs) happens. And they turn around and they always go like this. (sighs) Now I want you to think about this. God is transforming you. God is making you into something that only he can see. You cannot see the finished product. Sometimes along the way, we can't even see the change taking place. And yet there's going to be a time when God says to you, just like they say on the makeovers, would you like to see? And we're going to get to turn around and see the person that God has made us to be. Now, how does that happen? It happens by the witness Of others. People can say to you, I'm further down this road. God is transforming me. These are the things that he's taken off. These are the things he's put on. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. All things that God is adding to who you are. The witness of others. God has changed me. God can and will change you the witness of the word. The word tells us that God took an Egyptian heathen murderer and made him the savior of God's people. And I want to be very clear, you have to participate in the worship with God's people. You can't do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. Now, I I do go to the gym when I can, I like to go to the gym, and right now we've got all the newbies, all the people who made a New Year's resolution, and what I think Planet Fitness gave them a twenty-five percent or twenty-five cent uh, initiation fee, and then you pay ten dollars a month. And now there's all these people in the gym who don't know how to use the machines, and they don't have good gym etiquette, and they're just everywhere, annoying those of us who have been there forever. And I think it's a lot like church. The newbies come to church and we're supposed to take care of them and help them transform and yet they're sitting in the pew that I've sat in for the last 30 years or they don't know the right hymns or they keep saying trespasses during the Lord's prayer. Now I don't know about you but I struggle with that because I have to stop every Sunday and go debts, I have to say debts, debts. (laughs) Why? Because I grew up Methodist. God doesn't care if you say debts or trespasses. He would like you to be here just to say the Lord's Prayer. You've gotta participate in the worship with God's people. So what does this mean for us? John 8, 36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. But before that, he was an advocate for the abolition of slavery, and he had the opportunity, true story, to go to a slave auction. And he was appalled. And he saw the violence, and he saw the degradation of human beings, and he didn't know what to do. And they brought up this young girl, and she was just defiant. And he, he wrote, You could see that the abuse. And the violence over the years had changed her from the inside out. And she stood defiantly on the auction block and they began to call out the numbers. And Abraham Lincoln began bidding. And he won the bid and he, he, he bought a slave. I want you to hear this. Abraham Lincoln bought a slave. And they gave her to him after. And he said to her, you're free. And she looked at him defiantly and said, free for what? And he said to her, you're free to do anything you want to do, free to go anywhere you want to go. She said, I can go anywhere I want to go? He said, yes. She said, I want to go with you. Jesus saw you on the auction block. He bought you with his blood and his life. And he says to you, you are free, free indeed. And we say to him, free to do what? And he says, free to go anywhere you want. And all he wants to hear from us is that I want to go with you. Jesus and the disciples and we have to leave that mountain. Do you want to be different today? Do you want to be a different person? Then you have to give your heart to Jesus. Jesus says, be born again, give your heart to me, and I will make you a different person. If you've never made that decision, if you've never given your heart to Christ, then make this the day that you do it, and we'll leave the first two pews open during our final hymn, and come forward and pray with our deacons or our pastors. If you have given your life to Christ, and you're not different you're not transformed, you feel like you're treading water, you're going nowhere, you're on a treadmill rather than on a path up or down a mountain. Then this is the day that you need to pray with our deacons and our elders and talk to God and say, God, change me. Make me the person you would have me be. And finally, If you have been changed, if you are further down that road than some other people, and you have a vision, a call, a passion on your heart to share that transforming love of God with others, then come forward and let us help you find God's plan for growth and change. Let us help plant you in a ministry that fulfills that call. Amen.